2021 will let you down. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. It's actually what I wanted to title this sermon. You'll notice in your service guide, the title of the sermon this morning is A Heart for Revival. I came up with that sermon title back when Garrett was planning our services way back in the summer. And as the time towards the end of the year 2020 grew closer and closer to an end, I started to have more and more of a burden to rename the sermon. You can ask Annette. I sent her probably five or six different sermon titles. And she said, have you made a decision yet? Have you made a decision? I kept waffling. And so my old sermon title, A Heart for Revival, made it end. But I had a a list of of probably six, seven, eight different sermon options. One was 2021 will let you down. Another, 2021 can't save you. Another, hope and heartbreak in 2021. Another, 2021 isn't our savior. And finally, revive us 2021. Those were the options that I didn't go with. You can see the angle that I was thinking of of taking as we were coming to Psalm 85 this morning. And the reason I was thinking along these lines is that we've complained a lot about the year 2020, and rightly so. But maybe we've been a bit too romantic in our memories of what 2019 was like, and maybe we've put a bit too much hope in the year 2021. I get it. We've had a rough year and and we're hoping for a change in circumstances and there's something uh, communally encouraging about all of us commenting on our sustained, sustained struggle together this year. But we don't know what 2021 will bring. In modern American history alone, the so-called Spanish flu began in 1918 and lasted until 1920. The Great Depression stretched from 1929 to 1933, World War II, 1939 to 我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想我们要想想
recall of restoration past. Number two, prayer for restoration present. And three, faith for restoration future. So three ways to look at this, three ways to think, three ways to approach God. Recall of restoration past, prayer for restoration present, and three, faith for restoration future. Look at me, Psalm chapter 85. I'll read. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Point number one, recall of restoration pass. The first three verses we'll focus on here. And since we've read through this entire psalm, you, you, you see where it's going and you get a feel for the context of this. The Israelite community is having a rough go of things. Uh, we don't know the specific context of what they're going through. The different people have different arguments that they'll make for, for where to locate this just historically in, in Israel's history and in, in, their, uh, uh, in, in the timeline of the Old Testament. We, we really don't know. There's different takes at, at, at where you should locate this. We don't, we, there's nothing in the psalm itself that nails it down to specific events. You do see a note there at the beginning, uh, right uh, before verse 1, uh, that says to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, the sons of Korah, the, the, if back in uh, the book of Numbers chapter 16, there was a rebellion against Moses and Aaron uh, led by, by this guy named Korah and another guy named Dathan and another guy named Abiram. And they rebel against Moses and Aaron. What makes you guys so special? Uh, and, uh, and God basically opens up the ground and swallows them. And so uh, Korah uh, is, is, uh, is, is um, taken out by God for this rebellion against uh, God's chosen leader. Apparently, later in his lineage, uh, there, there are some, some sons of Korah who are involved in, the, uh, in, in leading the, the nation musically, and so that's why we have this, this psalm of the sons of Korah here. Again, that doesn't help us uh, nail down this specific context, but it is a small reminder, I think, of the very thing that this psalm itself is meant to, is meant to do. It's a reminder, this psalm, uh, the very thing that this psalm will illustrate is God's ability to restore and revive. And we see even here in, in the fact that you have the sons of Korah, uh, this guy who was famous in the Old Testament for his rebellion against God, that in his uh, lineage, you actually have some of his family members who are leading the nation in worship. 
But whatever the historical context, we know that things have not been easy for this community. As you look at the first three verses there, they're in need of restoration. They are in need of revival. They need some life breathed back into them. They feel like they're experiencing God's displeasure. They have a tangible need for a feeling of divine peace spoken to them. You get that feel from the entire psalm. Now, friends, perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you can relate, whether it's the events of 2020, or maybe it's your own personal struggle with sin, or maybe it's an experience of spiritual apathy in your life recently, or maybe it's just all of those things jumbled up together over this past year. You, know, you struggle spiritually and uh, the, the, um, all of the tensions and um, difficulties that we've all faced as a, as a planet in 2020. Struggle with sin. Maybe you, f- you feel what these psalmists feel. God, we need revival. We need restoration. We need peace. We need something to, in some regard, note where they begin. Note where they begin. They begin in the past. They begin by recalling God's past faithfulness. If you look at verse 1, they remember that the Lord was favorable to his land and that he restored the fortunes of Jacob. Jacob there serving as a, as a shorthand for the nation of Israel itself. This isn't the first time that this community has been in need. This isn't the first time that they've been in difficult circumstances. This isn't the first time that they've been struggling and, and, and needed help from God. This isn't, as they say, their first rodeo. But as they've experienced death and loss before, as they've been beat down before, as they've gone hungry before, as they've faced threats from without and doubts from within, as they've faced all of those things, they look back and they say, you know what? God was always there. God was always there through all of those things. And whatever instances that they, whatever circumstances they faced, God was present and they remember the way that he restored their fortunes. They remember the way that he forgave their sin. They remember the way that he withdrew his wrath. They can look back and see God's tangible presence with them in the past. And if you look at verses two and three, you'll see what this favor and restoration looked like. God forgave their iniquity, it says. God covered their sin. God withdrew his wrath. God turned from his anger. These are an amazing couple of verses. I don't know if you ever have an experience where you look at a page in the Bible and are just amazed at the way that God's word comes together. But we look at this page, at those two verses of Psalm 85, verses 2 and 3, and we see the, the seeds of the good news of Christianity, the seeds of the gospel message planted here that come in full bloom with Christ. We see the, the, these, these seeds of the gospel that are, that are here, that, that even here we see God's people experiencing him as a God who forgives iniquity, experiencing him as a God who covers over sin, experiencing him as, as a God who, who withdraws his wrath. This experience that, that they had in their past is, is some sort of a, a minor way that points us forward to the ultimate experience of these things in Christ. 
Now, if you're here as a non-Christian and you haven't read much of the Bible, we're glad you're here. And you may even be thinking here as you hear this described of God, that God is a God who covers over sin and God is a God who forgives iniquity and God is a God who withdraws wrath. And you might hear that and we'll say, of course, that's the stuff of being God. Right? That, that's what God does. God is, that, that, that's his role. That's his job is to, is to forgive people. That's his job to withdraw wrath. That's his job to overlook iniquity. That, that, that's what God does. Well, yes and no. Yes, God does that. Yes, God does that. God is a God who forgives wrath and overlooks sin. But, but, but there's more to the story. God actually can't just look at our sin and just forgive it in and of itself, right? God is a God of love, but God is also a good, just judge. And as a good, just judge, our sin, the thing that we all not just commit sins, but we are all sinful from the beginning. It's in our very nature. And the Bible says that what that sin, the consequences of that or what that sin earns is death. We have all rebelled against God and in our sin and our rebellion, God is like a, a good, just judge that's also your father. And, and you're, you're convicted of a crime. There's a there's security cam footage. There's everything. You're guilty as you could possibly be. And you go into the courtroom and, and that judge is your dad. And you're thinking, sweet, I'm getting off. I'm getting off easy. My, the, the judge is my dad. But, but you know, if he's a good judge and he's a just judge, not only does he love you, but, but, and that's true, but he has to do his job. He, 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 is, he, he has to do what is right, what is just. And that, that's what God does with our sin, that, that God looks at us. And yes, God is a God of love, but God is also a God that must punish iniquity and punish rebellion. So this is who God is. But God, in his love, we see in the good news of, of Christianity that God is love. But, but his, his love is in accordance with truth. And we've rebelled against him. But that, that rebellion and animosity, it, it, it comes to face with God's, God's love and his mercy shown for us in Christ. Love steps in and God makes a way that we might be declared righteous. God makes a way in Christ that what we're seeing right here can happen for each and every one of us. That our sin can be covered. But it's not through us doing good things to earn God's favor. It's, it's, it's that God's own son came that, that God's wrath might be satisfied on him who was perfect taking our place and standing on our behalf and dying for the sins of all. And so the, the, the consequences for our sin is that our, our sin isn't just simply ignored by God. It is paid for, but it's paid for by another. It's paid for by Jesus and not by us. By perfect sacrifice, whereby, as we see in verses 2 and 3, God's punishment of sin is, is satisfied and iniquity is forgiven as a free gift to any of us who would turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. So here in Psalm 85 verses 1 through 3, we, we, we see that this has always been the heart of God towards his people. And, and so remember how these first three verses are functioning in Psalm 85, right? Restoration and revival is what is needed. In the same way that maybe you sense a need for restoration and revival today. And so these psalmists, they start out by recalling past restoration. They remember what God has done. They remember that he is a God of salvation. They bring this to mind. Why? Why do they begin here? 
Because if you're going to call out to God in prayer, if you're going to plead with him for restoration and revival, you have to begin with thankfulness for what he's done in the past and a recognition of his character. We know that this is what he's like. And so we have a firm ground from which to call out for him to do it again. That's why they begin where they begin. That's why they begin by looking for the past. That's why you must begin in the same place of looking to God's faithfulness that he's shown to you in Jesus. Let me put it another way. Beginning with God's past faithfulness, it's not a conversational sales tactic to get God to do what you want. So it's not as if they, they look back in the past and like, listen, God, you did this before. You have to do it again. God, you brought revival in the past. You must do it now. That's not what's going on here. That's not why they begin in the past. No, it's a way to, to thank God and to praise God and to recognize who he is and to honor him for his character and to give him glory for his goodness and his power and his love and his care. That's why they begin in the past. That's why we likewise remember what God has done for us and the mercy that he's shown for us in Jesus. Not to say, God, you did that for us then, I demand this now. No, it's a way to go to him in thankfulness and say, God, I know this is your heart. God, I know this is what you're like. I know that you are a God who forgives iniquity. I know that you are a God who is near to your people and knows who they are, where they are, and can reach into their world to solve their deepest problems. I know that's who you are. And it flavors the way that they approach him. I remember when I was a, when I was a, a kid, I don't remember what age, uh, it, was, it was one of my earliest memories, but I remember I was, uh, my, I was outside, my dad was working building a deck around the side of our house and we had this kind of a concrete wall uh, by our basement door and uh, I, I was my brother, older brother and sister off doing something, so you make up games by yourself as a kid. So I had a baseball and a glove, I uh, didn't have anybody else to throw with. And so I envisioned that I was a, a major league pitcher. And so I went and I got a piece of chalk and I drew a square, a strike zone on the wall and I would kind of stand back and I would, you know, I was probably throwing 90, uh, but I would uh, throw these, uh, these fastballs and kind of try to strike out a batter and the balls would bounce back and I'd catch them. And, and so I'd go through this whole thing. And, and, uh, and the, the problem is that the strike zone was right in between a window and a, and a door. <laughs> Uh, and I didn't have the most control uh, in my uh, pitching abilities at that point. I remember at one point I had a wild pitch and, and it, it hit uh, the, the wooden frame of this door, of the screen door that we had and cracked. I remember I was throwing 90. And so uh, the, the door cracks and kind of falls off. And, and I, 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 there was just this terror, this dread that set in on me. And I don't know why this was, I was you know, and didn't become a believer. It wasn't the, the spirit necessarily convicting me of anything. I, I just, there was something in me that, you know, I just I needed to go talk to my dad. I'd never done this before. I walk around the side of the house and I find my dad where he is and I'm kind of, you know, kind of going back and forth and I finally come out with it. Dad, I threw this incredible fastball and smashed our, our basement door. And my dad, and, and I, I was, I, man, I know I'm going to get in trouble. I'm grounded. I'm, this, is, this is not going to go well. My dad gets down on a knee and he puts his hand on me. He says, son, he said, I, he says, this is called facing the music. He said, this is, this is, you, this, you're doing the right thing. I'm not mad at you. Actually, I'm proud that you would come and, uh, and confess what you've done. That, that's, that's what it means to be a man. And I remember I've started crying. I'm about to start crying right now. Uh, and, and, I, and I walk away and, and that interaction with him, it, it shaped me. And, and I did, it, but what it did, it didn't make me 
um, go to him later and say, hey, you remember when you forgave me back then? Do it again. <laughs> That's not what it produced in me, but it did produce in me a, a feeling of, man, this is, who my God, this is who my dad is. My dad, is, he, he loves, he forgives. And so even if I make some just bonehead decisions, which I made plenty, I had a confidence to go with him and say, hey, here's what I did. Here's how I screwed up again. Here's how I need help from you. Here's how you can rescue me one more time. And I could go with him with confidence because I knew that's who he was in the past. And I know that's how he's going to show up now. And friends, that, that, that is what they're doing here. That's what these psalmists are doing, that they're saying, God, you were favorable to your land. You withdrew your wrath. You, you, you restored. You turned from your hot anger. So church, where should you first turn as you feel yourself worn out and weary and in need of restoration and revival. Look back, look back. Remember God's favor shown to us in Christ. Remember God's nearness in other seasons and through other difficulties and through other trials that you've had. Remember that. As you look at the Old Testament, you see illustrations of this all over the place. Israel, as they cross through the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land, they come back and they set up, a, you remember the stones of remembrance? And the way that they explain that, they say, we're going to put this, mount, this mountain of stones right here so that when your kids look back and say, guys, what's up with the, with the, the stack of rocks over there? We can tell the story of God's faithfulness in the past that is going to fuel faith for the future. Maybe a real practical way for you to do this as you consider ending the year 2020 and going into the year 2021 is to, is to do your own stones of remembrance. We, we did this as a family at one point earlier in, 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 uh, in, our, in, our, in our marriage where we actually literally got little stones and we took out a marker and we would just write a, a one word uh, descriptor on there of some way that God had, had shown us his, his presence and his love to us. And we put those in a box and, and the idea is that just every now and then, I don't know if it's on an anniversary or a new year or something, you could take out a stone and read that word and tell the story. Remember what God did. Uh, Kim and I, I think we stole this from the Kells, but we, we at, 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 on January 1st or New Year's Eve every year, we, we get together and we, we sit down and we, uh, Kim will have a list of 10, we call it our, our, uh, our thankful and our trusting list. So what, what are the 10 things that we're thankful for from, from the previous year? What are 10 things that we're trusting God for for the year to come? And it's a way of us just rehearsing God's faithfulness. I'm thankful for the way that you did this and showed up in this way. That's what they're doing here. We have to begin there that fuels our ability to call out for him in the presence and our vision of what he can do in the future, which is where this psalm is going next. So number two, so not just a recall of, of restoration past, but a prayer for restoration present, a prayer for restoration present. Look at verse four. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. Having remembered God's past faithfulness, in verses one through three and verses four and following, you see the, 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 the psalm uh, turns and goes on to a specific request, a specific prayer to act in their current day. In the midst of an undesirable condition, they call out to God. But I want you to note in those verses we just read, verses four through eight, I want you to note four things about how they call out to God in their anguish. Four things about how they call out to God in their anguish. 
We're going to see that they have the, the right source, the right request, the right goal, and the right posture. So the right source, the right request, the right goal, and the right posture. So first they go to the right source. This is God himself, God of our salvation. Verse 4, restore us again, O God of our salvation. This is who God is. He is a God of salvation, and they turn to him as such. You look at verse 7, show us your steadfast love and grant us your salvation. God has a steadfast, loyal, special love with his people. And they are calling out for the, the, the fires of that special love to be kindled afresh. Friends, this is a move of trust and faith in who God is. When we use words like restoration and revival, those are words that, that we're typically using with, with some sort of an expectation of a feeling, of feeling a certain way, right? We, we, we want to pray about something and we want to feel refreshment. We want to pray about a situation and we want, we want to feel revival. We want to pray about a situation and we want to feel re restoration in our lives. And if we pray about our circumstances and we don't immediately feel better, we tend to wonder if there's a problem with God or if there's a problem with us. But what we see here is, is their remembrance of God's work in the past allows them to, to think about him and go to him in a certain way in the present and trusting him for what he alone can do. They know that he is a God of salvation. They know that this is the only place where their hope can come from. And, and I know we, I opened with this in the sermon about us kind of putting a lot of confidence in the year 2021. But I think there's something to that. And I get it, there's kind of like nervous laughter as we do that. Yeah, 2020's been really bad. I hope 2021's better. But, but I think in that we are even conditioning ourselves that the thing that is going to actually help us is just a passage of time. The thing that's going to actually help us is, 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 is the, the medical advances that'll happen down the road. And yeah, God uses means. God uses time. God uses, he uses all of these things. But, but, but friends, if we are not turning to him and saying, God, you are our help. You are our hope. You're all we've got. You are the God of our salvation. It's not the next year. That's not going to do anything for us. In the same way that 2019 didn't do anything for us. It's not that, but it, it is God, you, God of salvation. We call out to you. It is, it is not just this vain hope that things will get better. It is an interaction with a personal God who loves you and knows you and cares for you. And that's what they do. They turn to the right source, God himself. Secondly, they have the right request. Their request, simply put, is mercy. That's the request. God, show us mercy. If you look at verses 4 and 5, they're, they're calling for God to put away his indignation. They're pleading with God to cease from his anger. Now again, here's where we need to be careful as we read texts of Scripture and attempt to apply them to today. We can't map their experience directly onto our experience, but for their part, as we read Psalm 85, they, they somehow sensed that their condition was due to God's anger with them. They somehow sensed that, that, that God's indignation was being shown toward them, and so they plead for mercy. Now, now I'm not, that doesn't mean that any difficulty in your life, whether as an individual or in a specific community or in, even in a certain nation, is the direct result of God's indignation and his judgment. But also, we can't rule that out across the board. 
as the struggles we find ourselves in, sometimes are things that happen to us, COVID-19. Sometimes, though, there are things that we enter into willingly, our own sinful snares. And so we may still arrive at the same destination that they do, that we throw ourselves on God's mercy, regardless of the source, regardless of what's going on. We know that God is sovereign and that God is in control, and so we throw ourselves on his mercy. That is their request, and that is our request as well. As we seek restoration and revival, we go to the God of salvation, the right source, and we say, God, have mercy on us. Third, they have the right goal. They have the right goal. Their goal, if you caught it there, is rejoicing in God. Look at verse 6. There's a statement of purpose there. You see the word that. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The statement of of purpose or result. They are God-centered in their call for revival and restoration in their lives. It's not just that they're having a rough year and they're calling out to God for relief because, well, we tend to enjoy pleasure rather than pain. Right? And so you know, they could say, God, give us relief because we don't like pain. And, and, and that would be a valid thing for them to pray, but that's not where they go. They're incredibly God-centered and God-oriented in this. That they call out to him and they say, God, revive us that your people may rejoice in you. I wonder how that would change or impact or influence the things that you're calling out to God for relief from, of seeing it through the lens of God, would you grant relief in this area that I might rejoice in you? Would you bring revival and refreshment, God, so that you might receive glory and honor and worship? Now, you might have a question here. Same question I think of when I say what I just said. What about the necessity for us to rejoice always? Our ability to have joy and our ability to rejoice isn't tied to our circumstances. And so so our, our, our drive and our desire for theological accuracy sometimes will stop us from praying things like this. God, grant relief, bring revival that your people might rejoice in you. The theology police come in. Oh, no, no, no. Hold on, psalmist. You can't pray that. You can't pray that because you're to have joy and rejoicing in all circumstances. Listen, that's true. That's not what they're praying for here. That's not what they're... So my friend with cancer, can my friend with cancer call out to God and say, God, I, I, I pray that you would... Rid me of this disease that I might rejoice in you. Yes. Can he also say, God, even if you don't, give me the strength and faith to rejoice in you. Yes. God, would you please rid us of this virus that is going around this planet so that we might rejoice in you, so that we might take the masks off and get the tape out of here and pack these pews and have just the resounding voices of our church gathered back together. God, would you do that so that we might rejoice in you? Yes, we can pray that. God, would you give us the ability to rejoice in you and have joy in Christ even if this pandemic lasts till 2023? Yes, we can pray that as well. But just note 
that their goal here is that they have the right thing in mind. They have the right view. They have the, the right goal and that it is rejoicing in God. We can pray that way. Again, we don't, we don't want to pray that way to the exclusion of our being able to, to rejoice in him in all things. But, but don't let that uh, distract you. Don't, don't have the kind of the theology police thing in your, your, the back of your mind distract us from, from actually bringing our hearts uh, to God and, and voicing our actual desires and coming to him honestly and saying, this is what we want. We are praying for this. We are trusting you for this. And God, we want to do it so that we can rejoice through you in your bringing of relief in the circumstance. We see how that would bring you glory. We trust you for it, and we will rejoice in you if it happens. They come with the, to the right source. They have the right goal in mind of rejoicing. And they come with the right request of God's mercy. And then finally, they come with the right posture. It's a posture of submission. If you look at verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. After everything, after remembering God's past faithfulness and rehearsing that the way that he's been a God of restoration in the past and then calling out for God of restoration in the present, the psalmist say, let us hear what God will speak. This is a posture of humility and submission and waiting on the Lord. They're waiting on the Lord. God, we're going to pray this, and then we're going to keep our eyes on you and watch. What are you going to do? How are you going to answer it? We humbly submit to you, and we're going to wait to see how you will speak. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this psalm, says, pray and then look after your prayers. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. God, we're, we're praying this, and then we're going to look after our prayers. We're going to keep our eyes on you humbly, submitting to you and your goodwill and your sovereign love and care. And we're going to keep our eyes on you and keep trusting you. So are you weary? Are you worn out? Have you been wrecked by some circumstance? Remember the past restoration that God has brought. Remember what God has done in the gospel of Christ. Call out to him. He is the God of salvation. Plead for his mercy towards you. And see it from the angle, not just of your own personal desires, but how the answering of those prayers might actually lead to an increased rejoicing in God and then humbly submit yourself and wait on him. That's how we plead in the present time for God to restore us. The final section of this psalm, kind of picking back up in verse 8, going down through verse 13. Third point, faith for restoration future. Verse 8, let me hear what, the Lord, or what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. We see their faith for restoration in the future as they look forward and trust him for what he will do. In the same breath that the psalmists posture themselves to humbly hear from God, they indicate that they will do so with a sense of expectation. 
Now, some people feel that there's a, some, a kind of a gap here between their prayer, the, the prayer that they've offered in the rest of the psalm and this hopeful response right here, that, that verse 8 maybe represents some sort of an oracle that they received from God. And so they call out to God for restoration and revival, and then they, they wait on what God's going to he, uh, how God's going to speak to them in verse 8. God does speak to them, and then they step back in and say, okay, now we know that God is going to speak peace to his people. Now we know that steadfast love and faithfulness are going to meet and so on. And people disagree on whether there's a, a gap here in the text in that sense. Honestly, I don't think it matters. It, it may or may not be true whether there's a gap in time there. It doesn't seem like there is on a, just a normal reading of the psalm. But either way, they're, they're calling out to God is met with faith that believes who God is and what he is capable of doing. This is a good reminder for us to see with eyes of faith, to see with perspective that is, is global and eternal rather than just the, the right here and right now in my life. They remember revival past, they pray for revival now, and they can envision revival coming soon in the future because they trust the Lord. Now, there are two elements, I think, to this future state that they're envisioning and this peace that God's going to bring. I don't know if you caught them as we read through, but if you look at verse 8, he says, He will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So the first element here that we see is they are envisioning and trusting him for a future restoration is this. When turned by God, don't turn back. When turned by God, don't turn back. The psalmists here are doing a play on words. If you look at verse 8, when it says, let them not turn back to folly, the Hebrew word that is used there in verse 8, it's actually the fourth time that it's shown up in this psalm. And he says, don't let them turn back to folly. The fourth time that that Hebrew word is shown up in the psalm, it's the same word if you look up at verse 1 and in verse 4, where you see the word restore. It's the same word. It's the word to turn to turn back. And it's the same word in verse 3 for God turning from his anger. So really the idea of what's going on here is that God, the psalmist says, Listen, God turned from his anger, thereby turning their fortunes around in the past. And the prayer is that he would turn them again now, but let us not turn back to our sinful ways. So the psalmists are intentionally using that word because they picture God doing all the turning. God has turned from his anger and he's turned our fortunes then. We're asking him to turn our fortunes now. And then they look at the rest of the community and say, guys, God has done a lot of turning here. Let us not start doing any turning. Let us not turn back to our folly. When turned by God, don't turn back. Indeed, one of the reasons that God speaks peace is to turn us out of our follies. So don't turn back to them. Salvation is near, verse 9 says, but it's near to those who fear him. Now again, all of this isn't to communicate that God has some sort of a one-strike policy. He'll, he'll speak peace, but if you ever slip up, you're done. That's not the picture. However, we want to make sure that we don't make light of the grace that is shown to us. Paul and the New Testament in the book of Romans chapter 6, he's actually uh, talking about this. And, and he says, may it never be when reflecting on God's grace to us and yet our responsibility to not live in sin. Well, if God's going to forgive us, can we just live however we want? Paul says, no, may it never be. 
Those who died to sin shall not live in it. And we must remain vigilant because a lifestyle of turning to folly ought to make us ask some very hard questions of ourselves. Are we truly epitomized, characterized by folly or by wisdom, by sin or by salvation? So they say to the community here, don't turn back to that folly. Don't turn back to the way that things were when God has turned you and restored you. And the second element then is this, believe that God will do what is good. Believe that God will do what is good. Again, in verse 8, God will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Verse 9, his salvation is near. This is true. Our, our prayers rightly culminate in these same declarations of hope and trust. Help is at hand. Help is always at hand. God is near and will save if saving is what we need. And if he doesn't grant relief from some situation temporarily, we know that he has something far better in mind and that he will ultimately make it a reality when he returns in glory and fully establishes his reign of perfect peace and righteousness and justice forever. So we can trust him that he will do what is good. Now, if that's what's good for us, and if not then, then certainly it's coming soon. And they trust him. Verses 10 and 11, this is, if you look there, uh, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. God's kind character and his qualities of his nature are personified here. The psalmist envisioned them as actual people kind of coming together. His steadfast love is, is his loyal, never failing, never ending, unfading, committed love to his people. So his, his steadfast love and, and his faithfulness, they meet. And it's interesting, the word there for faithfulness, it's a word that also means truth, and you could translate it either way. His, his, uh, his steadfast love and his faithfulness meet, or his steadfast love and truth meet. Actually, some translations even render it this way. And so if you're looking at a New American Standard Bible or a Holman Christian Standard Bible or a King James or a New King James, they actually translate it that way that God's steadfast love and truth meet. And the reason is that behind the, the idea of the ESV, we render, the, the ESV translation renders it faithfulness, but, but the idea there of the, of the Hebrew word is that, is that to be faithful to something is to be true to it. It's to be true to reality, or it's to be faithful to reality. So God is always true. He's always faithful. He isn't swayed. And so the psalmists, they envision God's love and his truth coming together. And then they also envision his righteousness and his peace greeting each other. That's what it means that they come together and that one kisses the other. This is a, is a, a, a Middle Eastern way of, of greeting one another. And so that's what they envision there, that these great character qualities of God, his steadfast love and his, his, uh, his truth meet one another. His righteousness and his peace meet one another. They come together in unity. What an amazing picture. I don't know if you see what is happening there. But as revival and restoration is prayed for, they see God's truth. But God's truth, again, as we've already rehearsed it, God's truth about, about us as humanity and, and, and who we are in our sin 
God's truth is going to be a very hard thing for us if it's not met with God's steadfast love. So they see truth and love coming together. God's righteousness is the thing that we lack. We are going to be judged according to righteousness. It's, it's, but it's not our righteousness that, that we have any hope, but it's the righteousness of Christ given to us. And so God's righteousness that we lack, that we need in order to enter into his presence, in order to, to have any sense of salvation is, is righteousness that we don't have, that we need. And what meets righteousness? Peace meets righteousness. And so as the psalmists are looking at this situation, they say, God, we need revival. We need you to do something. We know you're going to do it. And what we see your truth being met with your love. We see your righteousness being met with your peace. And they see these qualities of God coming together beautifully and in unison. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. These great qualities of our God's presence and power are together ready to be dispensed. And where is it that God's truth and faithfulness, his steadfast love and righteousness, his peace have met and embraced? To Calvary, to the cross of Christ, where these uh, characteristics of God have ultimately met and been shown to us, been proved to us, ready to be dispensed in God's wisdom and love and power showing his favor in our lives. God has manifested this mingling of his majestic qualities and the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And knowing that, we can look to the future that such goodness from God is always at hand. And this is the image in verse 11. That these qualities are all around you and you didn't even know it. In verse 11, they, they spring up from underneath your feet. They poke their heads down from the sky. A true story, I was this week, I was reading this passage early in the week. I was sitting at our kitchen table and over in the living room, Kim was doing some homeschool lesson with, uh, with Sydney on similes and metaphors. And just as they're doing that lesson, I hear them over on the side talking about similes and metaphors. I'm reading a commentary by Charles Spurgeon who calls verse 11 a delicious scene. Listen to Spurgeon. I must have been hungry when he was reading this. Listen to, listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, this is a delicious scene. Listen to the similes and metaphors here. He says, promises which lie unfulfilled like buried seeds shall spring up and yield harvests of joy. And men renewed by grace shall learn to be true to one another and their God and abhor falsehood which they loved before. And righteousness shall look down from heaven as if it threw open the windows and leaned out to gaze upon a penitent people whom it could not have looked upon before without an indignation which would have been fatal to them. This is a delicious scene. I called Sydney over. I said, Sydney, I got some similes and metaphors for you. Listen to Charles Haddon Spurgeon. She wasn't as impressed as I was. But this, this scene, uh, uh, Spurgeon spins these similes and metaphors about God's goodness to his people and his readiness to dispense that goodness and his uh, ever-present nature with us that, that, that it's like somebody throwing open a window and looking down with favor and righteousness, the, these gospel seeds sprouting up from the ground, yielding harvests of joy. And finally, all of this culminates there in verses 12 and 13. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. So again, track, track there the, 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 the 
the storyline through this entire psalm that they are in a place of needing refreshment, restoration, revival. They have had a hard year. What do they do with that? Where do they go with that? They say, remember that our God of salvation has restored us in the past. That gives us a ground right now to call out for him for restoration and revival right now. And we know, because all of that's true, we know that we can take it to the bank. We know that we can fully rely on him and trust him for restoration in the future. It's coming. And so in verse 12, they say, yes, the Lord will give what is good. It doesn't say the Lord's going to give me what I want. It says the Lord will give what is good. Righteousness, verse 13, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. So we will have whatever it is that we need. In verse 13, not only will he give what is good, but he will mark out a path that is good. Righteousness there personified as a messenger running ahead and showing the way. God will give what is good. So church, when you are weary and in need of restoration and revival, your confidence is this confession that this psalm ends with. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. He's given it in the past. He can be petitioned for it right now. And he will surely bring it about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do call out to you for revival and restoration. There's certainly a way that all of us feel that and in a common sense with the difficulties that we've, we've had across the, the globe with this virus this year, with tensions in our own country, sin in our own hearts. And God, so we, we call out to you, God of our salvation, to bring restoration and revival. We know that 2021 won't bring it. Only you will bring it. And so, God, we come before you humbly. We want to watch and see how the Lord will respond because we know that you are good and we know that you are ready to dispense, that you have dispensed your favor on us in Christ, which enables us to trust you for doing what is good now and in the future. Ultimately, this leads us to pray, come soon, Lord Jesus, when we will fully and finally know this restoration and revival and refreshment in a real tangible sense for eternity. We thank you and we trust you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.